0: Well, good morning. I'm glad to see all of you. And, and like Trammell said, we want to spend time in God's word and uh, we will be in Acts chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, find Acts chapter 10. You should have a roll sheet in front of you. If you go ahead and fill that out, that would be super helpful. And uh, yeah, so we have a, a whole chapter to get through like previous weeks. And so there's a lot to cover and we won't be able to get everything out of the text that there is for us. And that's okay. Um, what we want to, to do is, is try to hit the highlights and get the main ideas of what's going on in this pivotal text. So this, this week in Acts chapter 10, we find ourselves in a milestone story of the whole book of Acts and a milestone story in the life of the church. While we've seen Gentiles, that is non-Jews, coming to faith before, like in the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, or proselytes who came to Jerusalem for Pentecost from other countries. Today, we read of the expansion of the gospel to the Roman Empire, to the Romans. Now, Jews have no ill will towards Ethiopia, right? So so the, the, the conversation and the relationship that was formed between Philip and the treasurer of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia, is one thing, and it's astounding and amazing and miraculous. But the Jews do have a problem with Rome. There is a huge historic feud. There is a, uh, in the Bible's terms, a dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles of the Roman Empire, the Romans. The Roman Empire has been over the people of Israel as its oppressors for centuries. And Acts chapter 10, what we'll read this morning, is a powerful example of God's heart for the nations, for the Spirit's work in using means to bring about salvation, and the reconciliation and peace that only Christ and his gospel can create and sustain. And before we go any further, you just might be thinking, okay, what does this have to do with me? I don't know any uh, Roman citizens, um, and I'm not Jewish. So what's the connection for me? And the reality is we all live around and serve alongside and go to class with and work with people who are not like us. They may not look like us. They may not talk like us. They may not be where we're from. They may be from a different social class than we are. They may even have a different uh, faith background than we do. They may have a different skin color than we do. So we all live around people who are not like us in a variety of different ways. And I pray that what we'll learn from Acts chapter 10 is is both the responsibility and the great privilege that we have as ministers of the gospel to cross boundaries, to cross these walls of hostility that exist in our culture. And if we're honest, they may exist in some ways in our own hearts to see how the power of the gospel can create and sustain Real, lasting peace. So, I want to read to you from Acts chapter 10, and then we'll kick things off. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, Cornelius. He sent them to Joppa. All right, let's pause there, pray before we go any further. God in heaven, we do pray that as your word is read and taught, that you would see fit to do what only you can do. Open the eyes of the blind, encourage the brokenhearted, challenge those who are living comfortable, easy lives. Would you transform us by the renewing of our minds this morning? Help us to see the glories of the gospel, to love Jesus and his word more dearly, we ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, the first scene we see, is, if you're taking notes, is a Gentile God-fearer's divine vision. Verses 1 through 8 of Acts chapter 10, we see this Gentile God-fearer have a divine vision. We meet Cornelius and we get a full introduction for this guy. He's a centurion, it means he's the commander of a hundred men, right? A century. He's a commander of a hundred men with a Roman name, Cornelius, living in what is literally Caesar City, right? Caesarea is a name given just to promote and exalt the name of their king, Caesar. So Cornelius would have been the kind of person that the average Jew would have feared and probably prejudged to be wicked and awful And yet this same Cornelius is is told to us, he is a devout man who feared God with all his household. He prays to Yahweh. He's generous to the people of God. So there's a kind of instability that we should feel when we're meeting Cornelius this morning. Here's this Roman of Romans who also is kind to God's people and prays to their God who's generous and gives. We don't really know where to categorize him just yet. We don't really know what to do with him just yet. And that's on purpose. But God knows what to do with Cornelius. He meets him through an angel in a vision, speaking to him as though he is already known, Cornelius. And he says that your your alms, Your prayers, this is verse four, have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, if you have read the Old Testament, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that kind of language of ascending as a memorial before God is the language of temple sacrifice. So when the Jews would give their sacrifices, it would ascend as a memorial to God. The aroma would be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so what the angel is saying to Cornelius is, hey, Cornelius, your prayers, your gifts, your generosity, your obedience ascends to the throne room of heaven as a memorial before God, and we see you. God sees you. We know you. On this thought, a commentator says this. In other words, God had acted to break down barriers between Jew and Gentile by treating the prayers and alms of a Gentile as equivalent to the sacrifice of a Jew. In other words, Cornelius' home has become a new temple. So right where Cornelius is, he's now able, he's seen as someone who really does worship the God of heaven, really does worship Yahweh. But this vision does not bring the gospel message that Cornelius desperately needs to hear. It led him, rather, to seek out a man, to seek out Peter. It led him to find the person who would bring the message to him. In other words, God's angel is using means or different ways to bring the gospel to this God-fearing Gentile. In other words, the Spirit of God is not going to bring salvation to a sinner apart from the Word of God That Peter is going to bring him in just a few verses. But what is Cornelius' response? What what, what would this God-fearing Gentile do in response to this vision that filled him with terror of this angel of the Lord? Well, it was immediate obedience. So what we see in Cornelius is good works, but we recognize that those good works are not saving works. These works don't save him any more than the sacrifices at the temple saved the Jews. He, Cornelius, needs to know Christ. He needs to know Jesus, but his faith in Yahweh leads him to the right kind of actions and the right kind of obedience. Students, we have got to get this right. We have to get the order right. Behavior does not save but our faith will lead to faithful behavior. And a wrong belief will lead to actions that are out of step with the truth, which is what we'll see in our second vision of the day, this time with Peter. So let's pick up in verse nine. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Sixth hour is about noon. And he became hungry For I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. All right, so we've met this Gentile God-fearer and the divine vision that he received. And now as we move to the second scene of Our text this morning, we move to a Jewish believer's change of heart. We meet Peter once again. And Peter's vision as he's going up at lunchtime to pray and thinks, I'm kind of hungry. What a surprise, right? Like at lunchtime, that's normally what we all get is hungry. And so as he's praying on the rooftop around lunchtime, he gets hungry. And as he's preparing, as the meal's being prepared, Peter sees a vision. It's an odd vision. It's a vision of a sheet with four corners descending over all the earth, filled with all kinds of animals, but would be understood to the Jews as both clean and unclean animals. And this voice comes and says, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter, this is some sanctified speculation. I think Peter thinks this is a test. I think Peter thinks like Ezekiel, the prophet before him, that his ability to say that he's neither eaten anything unclean or uncommon is a way of showing his righteousness in this moment. But this is not about food. What's going on in this vision is not primarily about food. Luke already told us in Luke chapter 11, you can find a parallel of this in Mark chapter 7, that when Jesus talks about what goes in and out of a person, Jesus already declared all foods to be clean. There's no tradition among the Jews that need to be followed anymore related to the food laws because the blessing of God has a farther reach than those who observe the ceremonial laws of eating. The ceremonial laws of clean and unclean foods separated the nation of Israel from all the other nations. But as we see in the book of Acts, that distinction is being done away with for something greater. That is, those who place their faith in Christ, those who are sons of Abraham by faith, whether or not they're Jews or Gentiles. So what's going on? Peter catches this vision from God through the voice of an angel to take and embrace something he has not embraced before. And like Jesus' call for Peter to feed his sheep, the call from heaven came three times. What God has made clean, do not call common. Now, we have to remember, too, where Peter is right now. He's in the home of Simon the Tanner. And you might think that's not really a significant thing, but tanners are those who would work with animal skins, meaning their trade was a profession surrounded by and in contact with death, which for a Jew would make them continually unclean. But here, Peter is staying with Simon the Tanner, He's with an unclean man in an unclean house and obviously has recognized that's okay. In some capacity, that's okay. But here, when he's in the house surrounded by death, he's having a vision that will lead to the Gentiles receiving eternal life. I think Luke is trying to show us some irony here. So Peter gets the message. His mind has to change. And what happens immediately will make it all make sense. For Peter. Pick it up in verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, so Peter sees this vision and goes, I don't know what I just saw. and I'm trying to figure this out. Exactly while that's happening, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you were looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited the men in to be his guests. Just stop there. I mean, don't miss the clear providence of God in orchestrating these visions, these events, the travel of these three men for these things to happen at precisely the fitting time for Peter to go, oh, that's why I just had this vision. Because now here's this Roman centurion, Cornelius, who's inviting me over to his home to hear what I have to say, according to the Lord. Cornelius's entourage shows up exactly the same time that he's contemplating this perplexing vision. And don't miss the Spirit speaking to Peter in verse 19. The Spirit speaks. His word is clearly heard. He tells Peter to rise and go to these visitors. Their exchange makes the providence of God so incredibly clear for us. He is sovereign over the big things and the small things in our lives. I mean, isn't it interesting that while Peter is praying, while his stomach is growling, he has a vision about food, right? Right? Like there's something to... God meeting Peter right where he is, God meeting Cornelius right where he is, both in the midst of praying, God speaking to them and leading them and directing them. We keep going. The next day, he, that is Peter, rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered I came without objection. I ask then, why you sent for me? So, this beautiful connection that takes place where Peter goes uh, to Cornelius' home, he steps in, he meets this man, and he sees what? A home filled with people that Cornelius has gathered together to hear whatever Peter has to say. I mean, Cornelius is already doing the work of evangelism of saying, hey, there's this man coming and he has a word from the Lord. And so I want you to come because he's coming. I-, I want you to come because he's coming. Hey, my friend, my sister, my neighbor, I want you to come because he's coming. He wanted them to know what the Lord had for him. So don't miss that Cornelius's joy in God already is infectious. And Peter clearly understands The providence of this event. God gave me a vision to explain what I'm about to tell you. I should not call unclean or uncommon what God calls common. We keep going. Verse 30. Look at Cornelius' side of this. Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I went for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Cornelius seems to believe that whatever Peter is about to say is from God himself. He says, look, we're we're here and God is present. We are aware of this and you have come as his messenger. I received the vision, you received the vision. This is absolutely amazing. I'm a Gentile, you're a Jew, and here we are. What do you have for us? Peter and Cornelius both understand the providence at work in this whole event. God is guiding and directing and providing the visions necessary for these two men to actually meet and speak and even share communion with one another, this uniting of relationship. And that leads us to the message that Cornelius, his family and friends, and we all need to hear. So look at verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. We come now to the last section of our text, which is the good news and the response. The good news and the response. Peter brings to Cornelius and his household the message of the gospel. He walks through the major components of the story of Jesus. He walks through all of the things that Christ did on the earth. This man, Jesus, is the Lord of all. He's the Christ, the Messiah. And for someone who is a God-fearing Gentile, who would know at least the major components of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, these words mattered to hear that Jesus is the Messiah, that He's the Lord of all, matters. He's healing after he was anointed by the Spirit at his baptism, and anointing or and opposing the work of the devil. But, although he was doing all these good things, he was crucified. And the language that Peter uses here is, "Sounds weird to us. Is not weird to them. Instead of saying that he was crucified, it says that he was hanged on a tree. Now, why does he use that phrase? He was hanged on a tree. Well, if we read the end of Deuteronomy, or we can go check this in Galatians chapter 3, we know that for those who follow and fear God, to be hanged on a tree is to be brought under the curse of God's wrath. So if someone were to be executed or if someone were to be killed and they were hanged on a tree as a result, the the, the law of Moses says that the curse now falls on them. This clear depiction of how does one fall into the curse of God's wrath? You hang them on a tree. So how is it that Jesus, the sinless, spotless lamb of God, the one who has done no wrong, who has has deserved no wrath of God, but instead has affirmed and obeyed all of God's commands, how does he go to bear our sins? How can he come under the curse of the law? You have to hang him on a tree. And so the crucifixion itself is a means of God's providence to bring about our salvation. Jesus died on the cross. But Peter says he did not stay dead. He rose from the dead because God raised him and he appeared to witnesses just like Peter, just like me, Peter says. And from that revelation, from that communion that Peter and the others shared with the resurrected Jesus, eating and drinking with him, spending time with him after his resurrection, there came a command. We're to preach and proclaim who Jesus is. We're to tell the world, that Jesus is the one that the prophets spoke about. We have to tell everyone that if you believe in Jesus, if you actually rest your faith on who Jesus is and what he's done, then your sins will be actually, truly, fully, and finally forgiven. This is the gospel. And the same spirit who orchestrated this meeting And the same spirit who empowers this proclamation is the same spirit who is sovereign over the response. Look at verse 44. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. Now, we rejoice at the sovereign, powerful movement of the Holy Spirit. Salvation has come to Cornelius and his household. All who heard the word, believed, and received the Spirit. But we also stand amazed at the clarity of what Peter declares. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. All come to Christ in desperate need of grace and all receive his grace the same way. There's no secondary path. There's no, well, if you don't have Jesus, you can do this. It is all through the cross of Christ and it is all by the gracious work of the Spirit of God. Now, while the apostles have died, the church today continues to proclaim this message and baptize those who receive the Holy Spirit. And there may be some in your class or in your life who don't look like you. There may be some in your life that you might say, man, they don't look like Lakeview. They don't look like they would really fit here. This wouldn't really, really be a good place for them to be. I wonder if Peter could have said the same thing. I wonder if Cornelius could have said the same thing. And yet the Spirit saw fit to bring these unlikely people together to show that the power of the gospel is stronger than affinity, it's stronger than hobbies, it's stronger than political affiliation, it's stronger than money, it's stronger than race, it's stronger than anything else. In fact, the church is made up of people who otherwise would not be together if it weren't for Christ. Those people out in your life who don't look like you, who don't look like us, whatever that means, they need the gospel too. And we as a church are in the business of getting the message of Jesus to everyone, not just those who are similar to us, not just those for whom a conversation would be easy. Peter and Cornelius show us that clearly. And if you are in Christ, you have received the Spirit too. You have the gift of the Holy Spirit. You can declare that message as well. So in our time remaining, I'd love for us to just, Spend some time thinking about how Peter's perspective on the Gentiles shifts and what that means for the church, what that means for the history of the church. Think about Cornelius, even before he heard the word from Peter, inviting his friends and family with this excitement and anticipation that something big is coming. And what might that look like in your life? Why is the story of the Gentiles receiving the Spirit in this chapter. Why is it so important? Why do you think it's important? Why is it important to you personally? And if all Christians have the Holy Spirit, then what are some ways that you've noticed his gifts in your life recently? What are some ways you've noticed his gifts in other people, maybe other people in your group?